0: Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast found at the intersection of spiritual quest and scholarly inquiry, and coming to you from the Mary Bakerty Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. It's great to have you with us for part two of a great religious experiment, military chaplaincy. In part one of this three-part series on the quest for pluralism in military chaplaincy, we discuss the mobilization of the chaplaincy in World War I. In part two, we'll resume our conversation with Dr. Ronit Stahl, author of Enlisting Faith, How the Military Chaplaincy Shaped Religion and State in Modern America. In this episode, we'll be exploring the evolution of the chaplaincy in World War II and the moral challenges it faced during the Vietnam conflict.
1: Two is an incredibly important moment for the chaplaincy, in part because of the expansion of the chaplaincy. Once the bombing of Pearl Harbor happens and the U.S. enters the war, the ramping up of the entire military, but the chaplaincy within it, and then the sustained engagement over the course of the war meant that the military needed a lot of chaplains and that Americans were really thinking about what the military looked like. And it was at a moment where there was both Um, A lot of challenges to making this, really, this kind of religious experiment work, and also, you know, challenges with segregation Mm. and other divides in American society, but also an opportunity. This is the moment in literature, in film, in in really public media around the time that that starts to advance this idea about, like, the multi-ethnic platoon, Mm. um, where you get Frank Sinatra is part of uh, a little clip of the house I live in and really is about what does diversity look like? We can all get along. Mm-hmm. So this is a vision. It's it's in many ways a very white vision. It doesn't quite know how to incorporate African-American religion into this. The chaplaincy also then acquires this public dimension that during World War I in the, ni- in the 1920s and 30s, the chaplaincy had been doing its work, but like primarily outside of public view, and World War II does change that. Suddenly there's a very public face to the military chaplaincy and public interest in it, and it also goes along with FDR's for freedom speech and thinking about what does it mean to have you know, freedom of worship and and religious freedom as a value. Mm. Um, So it's also about the alignment between public statements about war goals, right? Why are we fighting the Nazis? Why are we fighting Japan? Religious freedom was part of that vision, and democracy so then but then the question is how do we live this Mm -hmm. within our own space and so it's world war ii that also really attracts the attention of even more religious groups and even more people who want to be part of the chaplaincy who hadn't been it's already a significantly more diverse space than it had been during world war Mm one but it's still attractive um, to many groups World War One had allowed for the Eastern Orthodox, but there weren't any Eastern Orthodox chaplains. And then suddenly there are Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, other Orthodox clergy who want to be part of the chaplaincy. Mm-hmm. There are Buddhists who are interested in this space. There are women. There are... You know, white evangelical and fundamentalists who had been maybe not so interested in sort of the public forms of American religious life in the 1930s. And suddenly the chaplaincy is very attractive. So the work of the World War II chaplaincy really becomes scaling up and then managing what that means. And the head of the chaplaincy in the army, the World War II chief of chaplains, is. a priest, a Catholic priest named William Arnold, who, much like Bishop Brent in World War I, really had a capacious ecumenical religious vision. Mm. And while he was not, again, perfect in execution, he was open to the appeals from the outside to further diversify the chaplain corps and to think about what that looked like. What did it mean, chaplains, needed to do to serve everyone, mm-hmm. and how he could further that vision.
0: Wow. So I, I I was fascinated in your book how chaplaincy in World War II really contrasts with chaplaincy, military chaplaincy during the Vietnam War, that there's a very different feeling about it. And in between those two military episodes in American history, there's this period where you describe that there emerges this idea of the military-spiritual complex. I'd love for you to to speak a little bit about that and its implications for the chaplaincy.
1: The title, The Military-Spiritual Complex, is, of course, a riff on Eisenhower's The Military-Industrial Complex. Right. And that's important because, you know, Eisenhower is actually quite important to both of them, right? He he comes to the presidency, you know, in part through his experience in the military. And he was very much a, a creature of the military. His understanding of religion very much comes out of his experience in the military. He talks, for example, during his presidential campaign about the importance of being religious but not caring what faith mm-hmm. one is. And, and some, have, some scholars have View that as as dismissive of religion, but I actually think he is saying what the military had been building mm. for several decades. You know, what's important is to be religious. Exactly what you believe is up to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what we can share as Americans, he thought, was that sense of faith. Um, mm-hmm. The particulars were less important to him. But like the military-industrial complex. Fusing religion and the military has value to certainly the Cold War project of combating godless communism. Mm-hmm. It is ideological, mm-hmm. but it has those seeds of danger that Eisenhower understood by the end of his presidency as part of the military industrial complex. You know, the same concerns that happen when you f- fuse um, industry, business, corporations, and the military is also a danger for religion because. What happens when religion or if religion becomes so internal to this space Mm -hmm. that there's a question as to whether it can be a critic of that space? Or, you know, who is it serving? Is it serving the state? Is it serving religious goals? And these are real questions that... Arise after this sort of initial period because of the work chaplains are doing, again, domestically and globally, that they're seen as endowing the military with a certain morality and righteousness around their cause. And Mm. this, of course, will then come to a head in Vietnam.
0: I'd love to share a quote from your book that relates to the, the issues that came up around the chaplaincy in Vietnam. So it reads, quote, The commingling of religion and morality had long defined the chaplaincy, which assumed a clear and easy alignment of ethics and faith with religion and state. Vietnam publicly exposed the fault lines in these presumptions. As the Vietnam War racked the nation, the military chaplaincy became a critical arena of conflict, a venue through which religious groups contested American politics, argued about moral priorities and reconsidered their relationship to the state. Unquote. So, uh, yeah, I'd love you, for you to kind of dig into what were the pressures that the chaplaincy was feeling during the Vietnam War around the morality of that war.
1: As conflict grows in American society around the war as to whether the United States should be there at all, religious actors are Publicly, often part of the anti-war movement, we can think of people like the Berrigan brothers or Abraham Joshua Heschel as Mm. critics, very vocal, religious critics of the war. Mm -hmm. There are also religious supporters of the war. Mm -hmm. And this is different than previous wars in the sense that there, there had, of course, been some conscientious objectors in World War II, certainly in World War I, some skittishness around the American use of force, but this was not simply about whether, you know, pacifism was better. This was a conflict over whether this fighting was was worth it at all. Mm-hmm. And re- and religious groups really divided. And all of these religious groups that were both publicly anti-war also had clergy in the chaplaincy. So the question becomes for them, should they should they be serving? Should you know, clergy had to make their their decisions, Gr- religious groups had to make decisions about endorsing chaplains to the military since you can't serve as a chaplain without the, the sanction of your religious group. And the chaplaincy itself was starting to grapple with, are they participating in an immoral war? It was really striking when I was doing research that mm. at one point um, Right around the Tet Offensive, um, Navy Chief of Chaplains James Kelly was even asking his chaplain corps whether they thought the war was immoral. Groups are, you know, conducting surveys about whether you know chaplains view this as moral or immoral, or what chaplains are doing within the military to stop um, immoral behavior. And the striking thing for me was. We all go into research with some sense of the context and so, you know, what we think might be a hypothesis or an intuition about what would happen, and I thought that it was quite possible that chaplains would, you know, line up the way their religious groups lined up in terms of the anti-war movement, either they were part of it or they weren't part of it, and that's where they fell. But what I found was a much more complicated story, because while for many protesters and many supporters of the war, the question was simply, you know, do I agree with this, do I disagree with this? Chaplains felt a different struggle over responsibilities and obligations, and it was less a division between God versus country, as some certainly were saying, and more a question of who were they serving. Mm. As a chaplain, did they serve the state? Did they serve God? Did they serve soldiers? And to me, the most fascinating group was that latter group, the group that really saw that that pastoral obligation to soldiers as the most important and felt they could indeed be critics of the war mm-hmm. and think the military shouldn't be participating in the way it was in Vietnam or fighting the war it was fighting. But at the same time, they felt their obligation was to soldiers. And one important difference between chaplains and soldiers in Vietnam was that the soldiers were drafted, they were conscripted, but chaplains as clergy had automatic exemptions from the draft. Mm. No chaplain, no clergy person ever has to serve. So it was a choice for the chaplains. And many of them felt that they could weave a very fine line they struggled over it but they could wear the uniform and say they weren't they weren't just sort of subservient to the state they weren't simply enacting or following orders but that their role was to be there for soldiers and so they could in fact be anti-war and also wear the uniform And that, to me, is a really different story of Vietnam than we usually hear, Mm -hmm. and a complicated one, a hard one. There was a lot of theological wrestling going on, and what was also fascinating from the perspective of thinking about religious diversity and pluralism was seeing how very different religious groups were using some of the same religious texts to try and work out how they understood what was happening. And so a lot of religious groups were really thinking about, in particular, the the biblical story of Cain and Abel, mm. and the question of, of bloodshed and being one's brother's keeper. And what does it mean to be one's brother's keeper? and Who is the brother in this case, um, Americans, Vietnamese people, the world? There was tension within religious groups, between religious groups, about this, and yet often coming to the same text to try and work out how they thought.
0: To close part two of a great religious experiment, military chaplaincy, we're going to play a clip from an oral history interview with a former Christian science military chaplain about his experience serving in the Vietnam War. It will be followed by a comment from Dr. Stahl. So, this is Chaplain Carl Sandy Sandberg, who was a United States Army chaplain from 1970 to 1980. I was learning to handle in
2: my own thought the pictures that were being presented to me, whether it was immorality, whether it was uh, accident, uh, whether it was war, whatever it was. I needed to learn to, to treat my own thought and correct my own thought about those things and then let. God show me what was going to be the most effective means of of reaching an individual and and supporting them in the way that they would be accustomed to doing. And so, as far as as uh, for instance, worship services were concerned, I I was not conducting Christian Science services. I was conducting a service that was patterned after a uh, a Protestant worship service, a seminary, which is why I went to seminary and uh, learned to do that. I even I, I baptized. Uh, babies, um, and I, I uh, did not conduct any marriages, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I solemnized a few marriages uh, after I knew that they were legally married. Um, so it was an interesting thing. I served communion, um, and I had to do those things, especially in an a- area in a in a theater where there were no churches available for anybody to go to, and that's the whole purpose of the military chaplaincy is to bring. The sacraments of the church and and uh, what the ministry of the church to those who are are uh, in situations in deployments where they're not able to have those things, and and then the the military chaplaincy becomes an extension uh, of of those churches' ministries. It's a wonderful thing, I think, to 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 be a part of that. This church is a part of uh, a pluralistic religious organization that is, is not so concerned about individual doctrine and preserving the individual doctrines as it is providing ministry and care to those
0: that are in harm's way. Ronit, I'd love to just get your response to that clip.
1: Well, first, he sounds like the perfect person to be uh, <laughs> speaking for, <laughs> for the chaplaincy. And, and and the chaplaincy that the military envisioned, you know, as, as it wanted it to be. And one of the things I really appreciated hearing him talk about was, he didn't use this language, but doing things that, you know, maybe a little bit out of his comfort zone, right? But that that was his task and that that itself contained again, opportunities and that the ability to provide spiritual care for so many different people and and meet them where where they are is such a critical dimension of the chaplaincy that really to enter the space of the chaplaincy is really choosing a very particular type of ministry and a, a very specific type of service that It's funny sometimes to use the words particular and specific because, of course, it's a pluralistic space that is going to actually ask of clergy to reach out and to do work with people that that whose needs you know, and, and interests may differ from their own. And yet what a specific type of work that is to willingly take that on um, and to participate in it and grow from it I think is really important and also highlights the ways in which the military just created this opportunity for religious groups and religious people, religious Americans, to encounter one another
2: mm.
1: in a space that then said... You know, you do have your rights to free exercise, and we're gonna help you figure out how to do that. And again, as I talk about in the book, this is imperfect. This there is friction, there is tension. It's not to say they've they've figured it out, but the process of working it out has been so meaningful both for chaplains and for those who serve. And it is this space of experimentation and of trying things out and seeing what works and, of course, what doesn't work. And that's challenging. And that can be challenging just in terms of how to do it, but it's, it can be challenging for many theologically, it can be challenging, you know, interpersonally, and yet figuring it out or finding that path is also an incredibly meaningful process.
0: Mm. Beautifully said. Thank you for listening to part two of A Great Religious Experiment, Military Chaplaincy, with guest speaker Dr. Ronit Stahl, author of Enlisting Faith, How the Military Chaplaincy Shaped Religion and State in Modern America. Please join us for the next and final episode of this three-part series. Here's a preview clip.
1: The actual shift in the chaplaincy itself is not an internal decision. It's not that the chaplaincy decides, oh, maybe we should Incorporate women as chaplains. It's an order, right? It comes in the 1970s, first in the Navy from Chief of Naval Naval Operations Elmo Zumwalt, mm-hmm. who, as part of his efforts to expand both racial diversity and and uh, equal opportunity within the military, says all staff corps have to be open to women. So he says to the to the Chief of Chaplains, like, you need to find women.
0: I'm Jonathan Eater. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars.
2: This podcast
0: is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2018.